0: Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I'm John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, joined today by Phil Oakley. How are you doing, Phil? Uh, very good. Thanks, John. Excellent. And we've got lots of, lots of exciting news at the moment. It's been an interesting week. Yeah, I mean, really odd news as well in some respects. I mean, uh, we're going to talk about M&S and Ocado and their joint venture, which is odd. Very odd. Uh, we're going to talk about the house builders and particularly Persimmon, uh, whose profits are enormous yeah <laughs> <laughs> and raise some raise some questions uh we're going to talk about purple bricks while we're on the subject of housing their profit warning and what the future has in store for the alternative estate agency model and we're going to talk about amazon which is the subject of your column this weekend and while we talk about amazon which obviously provides a nice uh, tv streaming service we can talk about itv and the bbc and their incredible plans to launch a joint venture in streaming which i can't get my head around Let's try and get to grips with that. Shall we start with M&S and We've talked about Ocado a lot on this podcast. There has been speculation that M&S would try and get into online food for some time and that this might be the route they take. Is this a good
1: idea for them? Well, I don't think anyone's surprised about this at all. It's almost like Ocado has been casting a line for Marks and Spencer to come and bite and reel it in uh, because it's the obvious obvious fish that it needs to needs to catch. In many ways, this is a it's fascinating deal in many respects. I'm not sure it means any upside to the shareholders of either company. Marks & Spencers has been the obvious missing party, from, apart from the discounters, of course, who haven't been selling food over the internet. And this is something that they've not done, not even look like doing for years and years and years and Ocado has obviously been pointed out by many people as the obvious solution for them to do this and they've gone ahead and done it. But whether it's going to work for them, whether it's going to generate any fresh sales, whether they're going to do something that nobody really has done, which is to make money from selling food over the internet is very, very unclear, and they've paid a lot of money to have a go
0: at doing this. So, so they're paying £750 million for a 50% stake in this joint venture, which yes. is, as you pointed out earlier, values essentially Ocado's retail operation at £1.5 billion.
1: Yeah, and this is the thing that no one really, very few people seem to have picked up on, is that Accardo has essentially said, yep, I'm happy to sell or to give an, a, a, you know, a valuation for our UK retail business of one and a half billion pounds, and I think that sends a very, very, very clear message actually to how profitable this business can can become. Um, and my view is that it it actually gives plenty of fuel for the sceptics of Accardo that you know they. They've bitten the hand off MNS for this.
0: You you could argue though that Akana don't really care anymore because their uh, essentially their new st- their new stated strategy is to be a technology provider.
1: They do care because they need money. They are building out, or they just finished out building out a, a new warehouse in Southeast London. They are. I've got a lot of um, investment requirements over the next few years in terms of. Spending on tech, spending on robots, grids for their new customers.
0: But but you said they need money, but these things don't make any money. I mean, the money the money that they've got is essentially seven hundred and fifty million pounds for Marks expenses. Yeah, and Spencer.
1: That, yeah, and that's why they need the money.
0: Yeah. Okay. Okay. So so, so
1: the com- the company is you know it's not making any profits. It's spending a lot of money. It's debts going up. And I think this will probably. I think they're getting they're getting five hundred and sixty two million up front and then potentially 750 million in total, subject to how this business performs over the next five years. Um, this will clear pretty much all Accardo's debt in one fell swoop.
0: Okay, I guess I mean, we talked a lot about the Accardo side of things. You know, I guess now we should perhaps focus on the M and S uh, side of things and what this means for them as a business. I mean, if you're a shareholder, you might not be very happy because they've had to cut a dividend to and, fund this and ask shareholders for 600 pounds of fresh money. It's pretty significant if you're a shareholder I mean, and and I guess you know a lot of Marks and Spencer shareholders are long standing shareholders and and shareholders that rely on Marks and Spencer's for that dividend.
1: Yeah, but let's let's be honest, John. Marks and Spencer's
0: dividend's been hanging by a thread for some time. Yeah, but companies do have a tendency to, to, you know, pay the dividend at all costs, and and Marks and Spencers has been one of those companies, and 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 yet here we are. It's cut it. Shares fell. They can't be very happy.
1: No, I think this is not good if you're a Marks and Spencer shareholder. The the whole decision, the cost of it, what you're having to give up in terms of your dividend. You know, shareholders are being asked to carry a very high price to uh, to to elect Marks and Spencers. Try and have a go at making money from selling food, and I think there are lots of questions to be asked as to whether Marks and Spencers has got the right brand, the right customer appeal to actually make this work. Because you know, one of the, one of the things that strikes me is that you know the basket size of Marks and Spencers food is actually pretty small, and if you look at the kind of basket size that you need, um, that you need to to be sort of selling week in week out online to make the economics stand up. It's you know it's you've got to be sort of getting over, you know, 80 to towards 80 100 pounds.
0: Yeah, and and that's what strikes me as very interesting. You know, the M&S food experience is is it's not akin to the Tesco, the weekly shop at Tesco, no. the weekly shop at Morrisons or Sainsbury's. Yeah. It's it's a very different thing. This is this is like a a big leap for them. Yeah, its food, but it's not what they do. No. So
1: no, uh, yeah. It, and it's you know is this going to transform? Is this going to generate fresh sales for Marks and Spencer's food? I think you know. There's no, it's by no means certain that that's going to, that's going to happen.
0: It, it sounds like they're going to have to. Put, I mean, you would, you would imagine they would have to pump an enormous amount of money into marketing this to potential new customers who might consider MS for a weekly shop, which they have never done before. It's a new proposition. They've never
1: done before, and it's never really been the kind of place that you could go for a weekly shop, given where. A lot of their stores are based. They're not really the sort of place where you can go in, fill your trolley up, and walk out to your car park because your car's like half a mile
0: away. That might be the part of the strategic rationale, though. Yeah, because the shops the shops can't support the weekly shop habits. Yeah, they can only do that online. So it's it's a stretch, but there is a rationale in that respect.
1: But does Mark, you know, the thing for me, does Marks and Spencers have the right price point to shift a significant amount of volume of food? via this venture
0: i'm not sure it has i mean it's interesting i mean other things we haven't talked i mean the supply chain to support this you know if they do intend to grow it significantly and to to be able to offer the kind of weekly shop that will make this economic presumably it has massive implications for their supply chain and their ability to even do this yeah yeah it does i mean it just seems like a significant investment is still to come Yep. Not just the price they've paid, no, no, no. but how they re-engineer their business yeah. to, to be able to deliver this. Absolutely,
1: um, and the stock market gave it a big thumbs down.
0: Yeah, which I mean, you could say perhaps that was just because they're raising a, a, a you know a, a lot of money, but but is that a thumbs down to the strategy as well? Maybe it is. Probably a combination of lots of things, but this this deal is a great, a good deal
1: for Ricardo, verging on a great one. Because it crystallises 750 million of value, value, 50% of their business when their business isn't making any money. It also solves the issue with Waitrose Supply, um, because that agreement's coming to an end. First of March, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's days away. So Marks and Spencer's helps out Ocado by a clean swap of Waitrose Supply for Marks and Spencer's supply. Yeah. But One of the things that I'm sort of thinking is what happens to the actual pricing point of a weekly shop via Ricardo now? Because, yes, there may be price matching, but is Marks & Spencer's food or a basket or a selection of a basket of Marks & Spencer's food going to cost more than Waitrose? And therefore... Ocado's offer to consumers actually becomes more expensive.
0: I, I think it's very strange. I mean, Marcus Spencer does not have the same. Uh, Stock keeping unit range as as, uh, as other supermarkets. No. It's, it's just a very different business. I'm I've, I've, I'm always, scratching my head here. I it it almost
1: say. smacks of desperation from Marks and Spencers,
0: really. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's let's move away from Marks and Spencers, who uh, who we've also written about in the magazine uh, as well as your alpha newsletter this week. Harriet Russell has had a look at that. She's not convinced, unsurprisingly. Let's look at Persimmon who uh, Jonas has covered this week, you've had some quite spectacular results. The house builders and I guess Persimmon are, are kind of the, the standard bearer of, of everything that you hate about about the current house building industry, uh, Phil. Uh,
1: yeah, I, I actually had a very interesting debate on Twitter about this over the weekend. And some, someone pointed out that, that I hate house builders. I don't hate house builders, I just hate help to buy. Because I think... It is a bizarre scheme that really hasn't done a lot of good unless you're a shareholder of a house building company.
0: I guess, I guess if you were a supporter of the Help to Buy scheme, maybe if, even if you were in government making decisions around funding the Help to Buy scheme, you might argue that Help to Buy has, has uh, allowed many first time buyers to fulfill the dream of, of home ownership.
1: Yeah, and what the government will also say is that the money they've pumped in to Help to Buy is actually currently sitting at a profit because that equity is worth a little bit more than what they put in from 2013 onwards. But it is a bizarre scheme that doesn't really deal with the main problem in the housing market. The problem in the housing market is lack of supply. This is a demand-based policy by putting money in people's pockets. When you put money in people's pockets, prices tend to go up and that's exactly what's happened with with the housing market and also the new build market in particular because help to buy has been removed from the existing market uh, that was done in December 2016 and for one reason or another and i don't think the two are unrelated the the existing housing market is flat as a pancake in fact it's Probably nudging downwards.
0: Yeah, and 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 we're seeing evidence of that in the results of some of the estate agency businesses, like Purple Bricks, exactly.
1: For example. But what's happening with the new build market is that you're still getting some house price inflation.
0: Not a lot. I think it was one in, percent uh, in Persimmon's numbers.
1: Yeah, it's not a lot. But what's been what's been happening cumulatively over the last few years is that premium between a new build house and an equivalent existing house on the secondary market has been getting bigger. And that premium has been going into the pockets of the shareholders of building companies. You
0: might have some angry people getting in touch with you about a claim like that. But your view, and it's something I've also pointed out in my editorial this week, this is akin to something that we might describe as crony capitalism.
1: Yeah. I, you know, people can be angry all they want, right? I'll, I'll stand by and defend this because you can go and walk around uh, or go on Right Move and look at what these builders are advertising, selling properties for, and a lot of it is indisputable in terms of you go and look at a certain type of house, go and look at an existing one around the corner for sale, and the difference in price is big. 10%, 10, 15%. Now, whether they actually sell for those prices is another matter because what's what's also going on is that that if you look carefully and you go and visit a few building sites, and I've been known to walk past a few, is that there are quite a lot of incentives that go on. For example, we'll pay your mortgage for 12 months, but don't let us cut the selling price. We'll pay your mortgage or we'll do some, some part exchange deal. Help to buy, I think it's irrefutable that help to buy has increased prices. And the windfall has come because the building companies have been selling these help to buy houses on land that they bought very cheaply. And so the assumptions of the price that they were going to sell for have been massively exceeded and that is a windfall that is is, in terms of absolute profits that has accrued to house building companies. Now I think that windfall is going to level off a bit now in terms of absolute profits as new land comes into the system but there is no doubt that that in in my mind that helped to buy has been uh, manor from heaven from house builders.
0: Yeah, and and there has been some controversy around this industry, and in particular the amount of money that's being paid to some of the the executives uh, within the industry. And you know, I, I think shareholders have been. They, there has been some ru- some noise around this, some dissatisfaction, but actually shareholders have done very well out of this as well. The capital returns have been absolutely extraordinary.
1: Yeah, but it's not it's not just the capital returns. I think you know one of the one of the. I can't get across strongly enough is that if you look at the way that house building works it's, it's essentially a function of selling prices against land prices. Yeah you've got your build costs, but you can control your build cost to an extent or you have a relevant amount of certainty. What you don't know five years from now or whatever is when what you're going to sell your, sell your house for. So you tend to buy land based on you know existing prices, and you will work backwards, and you will build in a buffer to protect yourself against losing money. And usually, most builders will buy land targeting twenty percent plus margin, taking into account estimate of build costs and so on and so forth. If that price goes up higher than what you you factored in, you make a win for profit. If it goes down, you start writing you start writing off land. So the point I want to make is is that these kind of margins are, are usually factored in. What Help to Buy has done is actually change the absolute amounts of money being made by the house building companies. And that's that's where that's where I think um there has been there has been a windfall. And the problem for companies like Persimmon is that it's selling one of every two of its houses in this scheme. It is Heavily, heavily
0: reliant on this scheme. So you wrote this piece this morning. Yeah, at six o'clock, I think yes, you said. Yeah, very early draws. I wrote a piece on the same subject yesterday afternoon. Yeah, and we've kind of reached the same conclusion. Yeah, which is that these numbers look great, and you know, for any anyone looking at these investments, you might think these 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 are companies that you know you want to have. They they are extraordinarily profitable. Both you and I have reached the same conclusion, which is when numbers look this good, somebody might start asking questions. That somebody being the government.
1: Uh, yeah, and you know there was. Obviously, there was a quite high-profile piece in the newspapers at the weekend about build quality, help to buy. The government starting to get a little bit concerned about what this scheme is actually doing. Because you know what is actually quite clear is that the government has put huge amounts of money behind this scheme. It doesn't seem to have asked for a lot back.
0: Well, it's asking it's asking uh, the house builders to help them meet their promises on uh, on home construction in the UK.
1: Yeah, but do you not think some of these houses would have been built anyway? For, yeah. I think to turn round, to turn round, for the house builders to turn round and say, without help to buy, we would never have you know increased our volumes by so much. I think that's partly true, but I don't think they would have sat back and not built up from 2011, 2012 uh levels of you know volume Mm. um but yeah it has helped to get shovels in the ground there's no there's no doubt about that
0: i I was quite surprised when they extended it in the way they did uh i have to say i mean well surprised and not surprised at the same time yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah. surprised because because there are even at that point when was that a year year or so ago there were questions being asked as, as to whether this was absolutely necessary but then at the same time not surprised because it's kind of methadone for the For the housing industry now, it is, but it's not dealing
1: with the issue. You know, if we the the issue is supply, and yes, I think over the last eighteen months, two years, if you look at the what the private builders have been delivering, yeah, there's been a an uptick in supply, which has been long overdue. But really, this doesn't doesn't get to the sort of three hundred thousand units that the government wants, and the only way. You can't rely on the private builders to deliver it. You need a different solution. And that's what help to buy isn't really addressing. It's partly addressing supply at a very high cost. But there is an argument to saying that help to buy at the moment hasn't cost the government a penny because the value of the equity pumped into the houses is not underwater But that's sort of beside the point. What help to buy is doing, it is shifting demand away from the existing house building market into the new build market at a very high price and also very high levels of debt, particularly for first-time buyers. And one of the things I think is incredibly dangerous about this scheme is that it's all very well a you know first time buyer going in and getting a twenty percent interest free loan for five years. What they need to understand is that when they come to sell that house, the buyer of that house won't have the same privileges, and therefore you get down into a whole um, debate on valuation. You know, if I'm a, if I'm a mortgage lender and I'm lending money against a new build house um, on a on an estate, brand new estate. If the government's taking 20% of the price risk away from me and I and the and the customers putting 5% of their own money in, I'm quite happy probably to lend 75% of the value. If I've not got that 20% help to buy buffer and I'm on the hook for 95%, I'm going to pay a lot of attention to the price that's being asked for that house. And if I think it's too high, I'll value it down. And this is this is what happens all the way through in terms of house transactions in a normal functioning market. And we haven't got a normal functioning market here. If you take the 20% buffer away, which is what actually will happen for the next buyer of a help-to-buy property, then the valuation of the lender becomes a lot more crucial. And they might, they might say, if the new build premium is 10%, 15%, that premium should actually be 5 And therefore, you've got people who are buying help to buy houses today, who may be paying over the odds with a lot of debt. Let's face it, twenty percent interest free—the capital's still got to get paid back. And the the fear would be that. This could cause a lot of problems in, in the future, particularly if the housing market weakens.
0: Good luck, James Brokenshire, housing minister, who, who I understand you wrote, you wrote to. I did write Expressing to your it. concerns. I, I did, yeah. And he, he appears to have listened. He has himself expressed some concerns this week, maybe, starting to. Well, I wouldn't say it was down to me. Well, Phil, you underestimate yourself. I mean, let's quickly turn to Purple Bricks. Um, the house builders look good. Purple Bricks does not. Um, is this a casualty of the, the as you say, the, the, the kind of weakness in the secondary market or is this just the bad business that's that's nah, being found out?
1: I think the problem with her, Purple Bricks was largely due to its um, American and Australian business and its, its expectations of the level of fees that it could get through have fallen well short. Um, the UK business looks as it was but I think that the dynamics of the current property market do pose a lot of challenges for Purple Bricks' operating model.
0: Something you mentioned to me earlier. I mean, you know, Purple Bricks' uh, selling point was that you know, rather than paying a percentage fee to a traditionalist high street estate agent, you're paying a flat fee. It could work out much cheaper for someone selling their home. But, but, but as you mentioned earlier, the, the high street estate agents have been able to respond to this, which is always a big risk factor in this, this model.
1: Yeah, the, the, the risk factor is, is that whilst the initial fee paid, the actual absolute level of fee paid, looks cheap on the face of it, people who list their property through purple bricks pay that fee regardless of whether the property is sold or not. And that's not what happens with a traditional no-sale, no-fee estate agent.
0: And those and those traditional estate agents have been able to lower their fees. Yeah, as because
1: well. because one of the problems with the estate agency, if you're not selling houses, you're not making any money. So, if you look at the the secondary market, you look at the RICS, um, the regular RICS data, the Royal Institute of Chartered Surveyors data. You know they're saying that supply is very very small, or well, it's it's it, and the market isn't moving. Houses houses are staying on the market for a lot longer than they were.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I mean, I don't know how much you can read into this, but you know, looking at you know second hand home sales, you know, I look around my area, and I, you know, there, there doesn't appear to have been that much coming onto the market. No. But I, I, I don't know whether I'm imagining it. There seems to have been a spike. There's a lot more balls going up. Well, you tend to
1: get that in February March anyway. Oh, okay. So know, in terms of a, na- a natural a natural sort of spring
0: selling season.
1: Yeah. Um but if you're not selling, you're not making money. But if you're purple bricks, you make the money as soon as it gets listed.
0: Not seeing many purple bricks boards, funny enough.
1: Some people and I did- a lot of people don't have boards though. Right. You know, a lot of people prefer not to sort of publicise on the street that their house is for sale. Yeah. Uh, it's quite it's a sort of I understand that. Yeah, but you're
0: trying to sell your house. I know, but it's... <laughs> but I think they just don't want people knocking on their doors. Shy people, which is very strange in this day and age but, when everyone puts their entire lives on social media, but there you go. Yeah,
1: but... So, th- this is this is an issue. I mean, you know, the critics of Purple Bricks have always gone on and said, look, how many houses are you actually selling? That was one thing that, that started off... I think they have come out and said that now. Um, but... You can bet, you know, bet your bottom dollar that traditional bricks-and-mortar estate agents are going to be pushing the message that if you list with us and your property doesn't sell, you don't pay us anything, or you might pay us a little bit of advertising. Which please. is a pretty strong message. Strong message in a weak market,
0: yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely.
1: So it's going to be interesting to see how that pans out.
0: Yeah, indeed. Uh you're not you're not convinced of the long term prospects of this business. I have
1: experience of my, my in laws were ran estate agencies for an estate agent for thirty years. And when they when they came to sell it, which was admittedly not at a great time, I think two thousand eight, two thousand and nine, there were no buyers. And um this was for a you know reasonably sized local estate agent in Cambridgeshire. And um, you know, the you know, the price earnings ratio you put to an estate agency business is
0: never going to be a big one. Yeah. It's like I used to remember there being lots of uh, sort of local travel agents in the old days. I don't see them anymore, do you? No. Same thing, I suppose. Let's talk quickly about your column, Amazon. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's a look at whether, you know, the case for buying Amazon shares, I think we can summarize that reasonably quickly. Go on then. They're expensive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But this is a great business. And, you know, it could actually deliver on that. The expectations baked into that share price over time.
1: Well, historically, it has done so.
0: And ha- because it has done so in the past.
1: Um, I, I've had a, a good look at this. Um, and I'm sure if you're, you, you're in a local bookshop, you're not a fan of Amazon. Um, are there any local bookshops left? There's a few. One not or two. Many, not yeah. many. But, you know, even if you are a cardo, you're probably looking over your shoulder at what Amazon does to you. The, well, indeed. The, you know... There are lots of businesses that have been Amazonized.
0: Amazonized. <laughs> Amazonized. Yeah. We actually wrote a big feature about this uh, a while back. We called it the Amazon Risk, and it was it yeah. wasn't about booksellers and music sellers. No. It was about all these sort of ancillary industries that Amazon is, is fashion, it, fashion, uh, uh, you know, logistics. Yeah. Uh, logistics being actually a, a, a very um, key key sector that, that Amazon is uh, mm. really really making life very difficult for grocery retail. Yeah. It's it's uh, yeah. I mean, this is a powerful business. Cloud-based computing. Cloud-based computing, which is where it makes the bulk of its money.
1: Yeah, this is this is a real. They they run the cloud-based computing business, Amazon Web Services. It's called very similar strategy to to the retail in that they offer very very compelling prices to businesses, mm, mm. and they grow through through volume. And this is this is a business that's. Making close to thirty percent margin now, whereas Amazon in North America retails making two and a half, and it's actually making the same absolute level of profit now as their as their north American business and this is a key driver going forward of amazon's margins. one of the big criticisms of Amazon has always been that it's got loads of sales but not a lot of profit, and it looks now as if that's starting to change, and that the margins now. A lot of it down to Amazon Web Services. But also, if you look at the North American retail business, the margins are starting to tick up. There's a lot of investment gone into fulfillment, the supply chain that is driving a lot of cost efficiencies. And what you've got here is a, a business that's still got pretty decent sales growth, but you would expect the profits now to start growing a lot faster than sales.
0: Yeah, that's always been the bit that's missing, Conspicuous, conspicuously absent. And it's yeah. made the shares look, look very expensive, but but perhaps looking more expensive than, than in reality they are, given that it invests a lot in its business.
1: Yeah. And I, and I think it's always been the sort of view that, you know, when does, when does Amazon decide, okay, I've got enough volume here? Probably never, but... Um, and I'm going to start trying to turn that into more profit.
0: I mean, I, I look at this business, it reminds me of sort of science fiction films, you know, you know, 20 years in the future, a company that runs the entire world, you know, the, the Tyrell Corporation or what it is. I mean, it, it kind of has that feel about it. it. It could do anything it wants. And that's one of the reasons it has a lot of detractors. Because it could be to get too big.
1: Yeah. It's, it's, it's like, as consumers, you know, we all like a bargain, we all like we don't we don't want to pay too much for stuff but then there's always the bit that eventually comes along thinking okay yeah it's great I can get it cheap but I don't really want to see the local shop go bust and that's always a sort of mindset that starts with Amazon you think yeah I like it I can't deny it's brilliant but what am I doing if I keep on buying from it
0: H- having said that I mean things like uh, the the marketplace you know that it doesn't sell Directly everything that that is sold through its platform. So, you know, Marketplace is supporting small businesses, arguably. Um, That's not what the EU thinks. Well, the EU never likes big technology, it doesn't American like technology Google, businesses. Like, no, it, like, it doesn't like. Uh, <laughs> is that because it doesn't have any big technology businesses?
1: Amazon and, uh, sorry, Google and Microsoft. But no. no, I mean, Marketplace is being investigated by the European Commission at the uh, moment. B- on what basis? um the basis that um it's not a level playing field that perhaps amazon uses the data through marketplace sales to help its own business and that also in terms of search the uh, the uh, the amazon website perhaps favors
0: Amazon products over marketplace. Well, products. of course it does, but I'm
1: not convinced that's true.
0: Actually. Well, no, it does because it puts the, it's put. You know, when you search yeah. for a book, its product comes first, but it's quite easy to see the alternative places to buy it. Exactly, and often it will say, "I'm not,
1: you know, I'm not here and, to defend Amazon, but it will say you can get this cheaper through other sellers. Click on this link. Absolutely, which I do a lot. So, so <laughs> but not always. you might have to wait a bit longer for it to be delivered, but um. This this is quite normal. I don't I don't know what will happen, but it's quite normal when you get businesses that start off small and then become very very big, very very dominant. That someone will say, "Oh, we've got to stop this."
0: Yeah, I uh, and, and and they are aggressive. There's no doubt about that. I, I recently read a book by uh, the FT's uh, under undercover economist, a guy called Tim Harford. He wrote yeah. a book called Messy. Yeah. And actually, the story of Amazon is features quite prominently in that book. It's messy. It's aggressive. It kind of breaks things and rebuilds them and it, breaks things and rebuilds them. Yeah. I, I kind of like it. It's... Yeah,
1: you, you've got to admire it because, you know, it innovates. It innovates and it's very, very customer-focused. And, you know, there's lots of lessons for lots of businesses out there in terms of the attention that Amazon Amazon, in lots of ways, is giving the customer what it wants.
0: Yeah, I, I guess one of the, the the potential worries is that having broken every other business out there and you know cemented its dominance in a particular marketplace, it can then charge what it likes. So yes, it gives the customer what they want, but it can charge what it likes for it. Potentially, yeah. That's and that's
1: that is always the nagging worry about any business that can become too dominant.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But, um, you, see, but you see, the thing is,
1: is that. You know, Amazon is spending loads of money to effectively give it a big competitive advantage. You know, it's investing huge amounts in its warehouses, logistics, leasing fleets of planes. It's getting rid of third party logistics suppliers. It's driving down the cost of delivery and it has huge amounts of volume and growing amounts of volume to support that investment and make that investment pay off. Now, if you're a competitor to that, how on earth do you compete with that?
0: Well, you don't, quite But likely. is that unfair? No, because they haven't done this through through mon- monopolistic practices. No. They've done this through they've, they've done aggressive in- business practices, but there's nothing monopolistic about that. Well, I think you can sum it up saying
1: that they look at places where there's fat, vol- fat margins... And lots of business, lots of volume, and say, right, I'll have a go at that.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I, 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 I yeah, I, I'm struggling. I struggle in my mind to 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 really get to with what I think about Amazon as a company, or, or indeed as an investment. But, but I think
1: you know, there's a little bit of doubt at the moment on terms of how the numbers are going to play out. There's issues in India. Um some concern that eventually this business and it will have to have to slow down and and you look at the forecasts that analysts have got out there and they do look certainly on the top even on the top line i can i can buy the buy the rationale for margin expansion still look pretty bullish yeah um now i mean my my view of my conclusion at the end of this was if if those are deliverable then in three years' time, at the current share price, Amazon's on a P of twenty-eight, which is still high. But if you were holding the shares for three years, would you lose money from today? I don't know.
0: Yeah, we don't know. But, but it's an interesting—it's an interesting one, I think. Yeah, uh, I, I guess even if you are just invested in some of the areas where Amazon is starting to to explore. It's it's definitely worth a read. This it's it's an it's an extraordinary business. It is, um, and, and another aspect of the business which we haven't talked about is the the prime service, and particularly the uh, music and video streaming service. The video streaming service in particular is is interesting in the context of news we've had this week uh, from uh, ITV and the BBC uh, that they are to launch a uh, streaming service of their own, uh, a joint venture called BritBox, which they already sell overseas, don't they?
1: They've sold overseas in North America, and they. It's done quite well, I think. Half got, a million subscribers. Yeah, yeah. It's that's that's not bad. But if you live in America, you, you know you can't really get get them. So I can understand why a few people might have bought it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Why would anyone in the UK buy this thing? This is what I'm. Str- Dom over in the control room shaking his head. I struggle with this. I pay a licence fee uh, to watch the BBC. I don't pay anything to watch ITV because it's funded by ads. Yeah. What, what am I buying? What, what are they selling? What am I What am I buying? and Why would I buy uh, it? They've got an
1: extensive back catalogue.
0: Which you can't get anywhere at the moment. Yeah, or you can
1: buy DVDs or, Which, or box sets. Like my Reggie Perrin yes, box set.
0: Yeah, you're Reggie Perrin. <laughs> but... <laughs>
1: There's no doubt. This, is, this has been the bull case all along. That, that both these companies have extensive back catalogs and existing production of new programs that
0: fit quite nicely into a into a streaming service. Okay, so let me get my head around this. This is not a replacement for the iPlayer, which is. Essentially, I don't know. So we don't know enough about this. To... Uh, you
1: know, it could. You know, this is this is one of the key unknowns. You know what does the BBC do with the iPlayer? The BBC has tried to put more content onto the iPlayer, what, it, it and Ofcom keep... has turned around and say, "No, you can't do that. That's unfair to
0: commercial broadcasters like ITV and Channel 4. And we... I, I, th- I have to say, so on that subject, you know, there are things that the BBC produces and puts on the iPlayer and that I want to watch that that I forget about and by the time I go back there it's gone and you know it yeah. might be unfair to, to ITV but I pay my license fee and I would like to watch that yeah, yeah. yeah. and and, and to, you know, I find the idea that I'm going to have to pay another five pounds a month or whatever it is, so that I can watch those things that that have been taken off the iPlayer that I've already paid for, I, I'm i struggling to get yeah. my head. Around and this. there are lots of people who have the same view. <laughs> lots of people cancelling their license fee. At yeah, the and this, and I think you know the license
1: fee. It looks like this is another issue that's rising up, going to rise up the political agenda, despite the extension of the charter to I think to 2026 or whatever. Um, I think for ITV, you can understand why why they want to do this. Yes. Um,
0: the ITV hub is quite poor, actually.
1: It is poor. It also, you know, it's got lots of ads on it. And consumers don't want ads. You know, if you're paying a, a monthly subscription, it's one of the big gripes that people have with Sky, actually. They hand over loads of money and they still get loads of ads.
0: Yeah, so I think Sky has something like 10 million subscribers still at the moment, which yep. actually I think I think it's about to be overtaken by Netflix. Yeah. Uh, I think Netflix is approaching 10 million, uh, or will we'll have hit that by the end of Q1. Yeah, um, it's
1: getting close. And um, BC, there's a lot of ITV and BBC content on Netflix. A lot of
0: Disney content on there as well, which I, is being taken
1: I, off too. I'd actually I mean, quite, be quite bearish on Netflix, actually, going off at a tangent, because... Traditional broadcasters can see Netflix destroying their businesses or damaging their business with their own content. And they're going to say, hold on a minute, we're not going to give you a stick to beat us with. We're going to take that stick away and we're going to take our content and we're going to put it on our own streaming thing. Mm. But you see, there's so many streaming services now. You know How many is the consumer really, really going to buy? And you know what is the actual monetary value of certainly for itv we can let's park the license
0: fee debate for somewhere else yeah but, there are plenty of angry people on the yeah, uh on the internet who for, talk about that but really. for
1: itv itv is you know getting about 1. 1.7 1. 1.8 billion pounds a year from tv advertising it's a very very the broadcasting business has a essentially a fixed cost base and therefore the movement year to year of ad revenue has a big impact on the direction of its profits. And in a recession, it gets hammered. And so this has always been what's put so many long-term investors off investing in ITV yeah, because I mean, it, it's too reliant on
0: this. And it, it does. I mean, when you look at its 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 numbers, when you look at its share price, it does look like it should be, it's a, ve- a share to buy, but but yeah. but it's really struggling to it's gain any momentum. It's a very profitable business, absolutely, and Ma- Ma- it's got a very good, good chief executive in Carolyn McCall, actually, who did wonders at EasyJet. Yeah, but all the right ingredients, but it- it's not happening with the share price. Yeah, and um, you think
1: what does a streaming service that you know the, the pricing hasn't been mentioned yet? But I, I've seen the fi- I've seen month. the figure of five pounds mentioned quite a lot. Yeah, you know, let's say you get. 10 million subscribers, which is a big, big task, I think, given the competition from Amazon, Netflix, Now TV. So you would be getting 600 million of revenue a year. Half a share of that's 300. Now, that's all right, but does it offset the structural and secular long-term decline in TV ad spend? I'm not sure it does.
0: I, I, I guess the conclusion could be that we are at an inflection point with the the media industry as we know it. and uh, Things could change in a way that we we can't predict right now yeah I mean the BBC
1: and the BBC is under massive pressure
0: so, so in that sense this is a, this is a, an industry which because of all these moving parts, because of all this competition, this proliferation of, of services, it's kind of becoming a little bit uninvestable in some in some respects. Just because there are too many unknowns there. yeah
1: I mean even for Netflix you know I, I would worry I, I would worry is if I'm Netflix I'm running Netflix UK I'm probably quite worried by this because I'm gonna I'm potentially gonna lose
0: when the when, when the contract expires I'm gonna lose a lot of content and it, and it takes us back to Amazon which has so much strength in depth as it were even as this this picture plays out and as it becomes Amazon has a streaming service which is not going to go away and it can wait and see it's making its money elsewhere
1: but it's not just the streaming service you know you pay your 79 pounds a year for prime and you get much more
0: than a video a- absolutely absolutely takes back to Amazon uh, who yeah I think I'm buying the Amazon <laughs> <laughs> short Netflix by Amazon I I think
1: this is a quite a controversial subject we had, you know, had something that was known as Project Kangaroo probably a decade or so ago, which was about putting together the catalogs of the main terrestrial broadcasters, and it got blocked. We've had the Ofcom sort of speaking quite harshly to the BBC about shoving stuff on the iPlayer. So there is a huge regulatory risk to this proposition, and you've got to have some sympathy with the likes of ITV because... BBC doesn't have to fish for its summer. It just gets everyone's tax to watch live TV and all the money
0: goes to the BBC. Mm. On pain of uh, imprisonment if you don't cough yeah, up.
1: But ITV definitely does have to fish for its supper. And it's not been allowed really to try and monetize a lot of its content. Or Actually, no, I'll take that back. It hasn't, just hasn't done it.
0: You know, it hasn't made a good job of the ITV player. H- having said that, its it, it, studios businesses are being heavily invested in, and they are making content which they are shipping around yeah, the world. But
1: there's is- nothing. There was nothing really to stop ITV setting up its own subscription business anyway with its back catalogue. Why hasn't it done it? Pro- maybe because it thinks it isn't broad. It doesn't have the broad enough appeal, and therefore, with the BBC putting those two together, it's quite an attractive proposition. The problem is all this dithering in the meantime has allowed Netflix and Amazon to come in and grab that monthly subscription revenue from households. Yeah. And people will rightly ask saying, look, I'm paying I don't know what it works out, 650 a month if you buy an annual Amazon Prime, let's say 8 quid for Netflix if you buy, if you want the HD version eight quid for, or whatever it is, or ten quid for, for Now TV, do I want to spend another five quid on BritBox, especially when I'm paying £12.50 a month BBC licence fee as well? It starts getting, starts adding up and becoming a significant monthly outlet. Absolutely,
0: especially as I own the Reggie Pay box set uh, anyway, on DVD. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, I do own quite a lot of BBC DVDs box sets. So I, I, so I, I kind of I, you know this is because that was the model, and and lots of people have bought those things. But yeah, the, I, I guess they're hoping everyone throws away their DVD players, so. which I think people are. I know they are. But it's, and I'm buying all their DVDs from the it, shop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but does does this solve? What does this solve for
1: ITV? That, as an investor, that is the question that you've got to ask. What is this solving for ITV? Does it plug? A hole that's going to get bigger in terms of ad revenue. I think that's fair to assume that. But
0: I guess the the, the alternative for of is that it does nothing and sees sees itself becoming irrelevant.
1: Yeah, it has to do this. It's arguably taken too long to do this. But is this is this the right solution? The BBC is a problem because the licence fee is going to get brought into this.
0: Yeah, well, uh, the debate's raging hard already. Yeah, so. I mean, you know, and I, I, you
1: know, I've got a lot of sympathy with that argument. People are all, the, the license fee. I can see both sides of the argument. People think it's great value. Other people think it's a grossly unfair payment. In in certainly, what given the choices that we
0: have today. Am I right in thinking there are plans to make uh, the license fee free for? Pensioners.
1: No, what they want to do is shift the cost of free TV licences from the taxpayer to the BBC. Right, and that cost is about seven hundred million pounds a year. Yes, for I... o- for over seven... So the BBC is very, very unhappy about what is going to blow a massive hole in its coffers. Yeah, I, God, it sounds like a mess. It is a mess. I'm not convinced it sorts out. ITV. I, I. don't think. I'm not convinced it can, certainly quickly enough, address the
0: concerns of investors that it's still too reliant on ad income. Fascinating, especially as we may be going into some very difficult economic times. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Anyway, thank you very much, Phil. That's that's a very wide-ranging debate there. Um, just to talk you through what else we've got in this week's issue, it's actually our ISA special week uh, as we are coming up to that time of year, 50 Super ISA Ideas. Um, it's a supplement with 50 ISA Ideas in it, from uh, shares to funds to ETFs uh, and investment trusts and some practical advice on how to actually buy these things and include them within your portfolios. Feature-wise, apart from that, uh, Philip Ryland's had a look at debt and how companies should be assessed on the debt that they hold, in particular, the rate at which they grow their debt. Um, lots in the uh, results section this week. We're getting to that, that time of year where uh, companies start uh, releasing their numbers. And lots going on. Um, one notable result this week is Metro Bank, which has had a pretty bit of a shocker uh, lately. But yeah, lots more apart from that. And lots of the new section, including some of the things we've discussed in this podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you again, Phil. Get to your nearest news agent, pick up the magazine, 50 supervisor ideas, how to get the most from your 2019 tax free allowance, or uh, pop
2: onto the website and subscribe. Speak soon. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy.